He's always excited for Sunday. There's something about, about this two-hour window that we as a church can sing praises to God, listen to God's word together, pray together, and have coffee fellowship together. There's something sacred and holy about it. See, when you go to a Hindu temple and you go to the, the temple and, and give your prayers, you have to go to a specific deity or spirit. I think it's more accurate to say spirits because what's in there are not really real gods, but spirits. So when you go to a Hindu temple, anyone been to a Hindu temple? Yeah? Okay. So we have here uh, in Devi, by the way, if you haven't seen it, you don't have to. And I'm just saying there's a Hindu temple here. When you go to a Hindu temple and you go for prayer, here's the thing. Your prayers must be directed towards a very specific spirit, a very specific deity. Because there are spirits that you go to when you are sick. There are spirits when you go to when you want blessings for your business. There are spirits when you go to when you have family issues, love life issues, when you want help from your school. There are specific deities and spirits that you go to because the Hindu temple is full of pantheon, full of gods, full of spirits. And you have to get the correct spirit to answer your prayers. And the idea is that the more prayers you do, the more sacrifices you do, the more often you go to the temple, the greater the chance you will have a good karma. Anyone heard about karma? All right. So I think there's always a, a problem, confusion about this word karma. Now, I'm sure you've heard this one or twice, but what is karma really? Let me help you with this. So karma, the word karma, is from a Sanskrit word, that means action or deed. The thing about action or deed is that sometimes we think that this is, is all about, uh, it's like the Hebrew, uh, the Bible's principle about what you reap, you saw. Because the idea of karma is, is about cause and effect. What you do has a consequence. Anything you do must have a consequence. So you're thinking, I'm a Christian, the Bible says what you saw, you reap. Is it the same? It's not the same. Because the Hindu theology of karma is embedded or based in reincarnation. What is reincarnation? Reincarnation simply means when you die, that's not the end of the world. When you die, you will be reborn. And then you will get old. And then you will die again. And then you will be reborn again. Is that good? So when you try to share the gospel to a Hindu person, and you will say, the Bible promises that you will be born again, they'd say, no problem, no problem, because they believe in reincarnation. See, the endless cycle of reincarnation is called samsara. They have no problem with rebirth, getting, dying and getting reborn. It's a way of life for them. But how does karma fit in? So say, for example, when you die as a Hindu, and you're bad, you do, you do things that are bad, in your afterlife, you will be either a pauper, somebody homeless, somebody like an outcast. But if you do good, if you're kind and generous and, and, and very loving, your next life will be different. You'll, you'll be probably more handsome or more beautiful. You'll have a better life. You'll be rich, a billionaire or something like that. That's called karma. Karma is about the consequence that you reap in the afterlife, in the next life. The Bible doesn't talk about karma. The Bible talks about what you reap, what you saw you reap in this lifetime. 
the consequence is in this lifetime, not in the following lifetime or the next lifetime. Many people make mistakes by thinking that karma is about getting consequences in this lifetime. That is not karma. That's called bad decisions. See, when you pursue drugs, it's very likely that you will end up getting bad. If you, say, find someone you love, no matter how cute or kind or generous, but if the guy you're in love with has no plan on getting a job, you're putting your future in jeopardy, correct? This is called bad decision. This is not karma. See, the Bible talks about something different. And this principle is found in Exodus. It's called lex talionis. Anyone heard about this? Lex talionis. Lex talionis simply means eye for an eye. Let me read to you Exodus 21, verse 22. It says, when, man, when men strive together, strive means they fight against each other. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, that means premature labor, but there's no harm, then the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then he shall pay, watch this, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Whatever injury that you exact, it will be done, in, done to you. That is lex talionis. I can only imagine if this guy who hurt that pregnant woman would pay for his life if, if he kills someone or the child in the womb. The main idea behind this law is to make sure that justice is served because God is just. That's the fundamental truth in the Old Testament about lex talionis. God is just, therefore somebody must pay the price. And the idea is that you pay it immediately in this lifetime. The consequences must be compensatory, not excessive, not wanting. If I injure you with your eye, I'm going to have to pay with my, my eye. If I injure you with my foot, I'm going to have to pay with my foot. The idea of Lex Talionis is to help people, the Israelites, not shed more bloodshed, not shed more life. So the question here is this. If the Israelites, you know, they have their own preferences, they have their own uh, personalities, accidents can happen. So the question is, how are they able to amicably live as a holy nation? How are they able to keep their status as a holy nation? Let me introduce you to the last offering that we're talking about. This is the last segment of our series about offering. This is called the guilt offering. In Hebrew, it's called asham. Let me read to you Leviticus 6, verses 1 through 5. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security, that means you borrowed money and you're deceiving your neighbor by not paying him, that's a breach of faith, or has found something lost and lied about it, that means you picked up something, not your money, and you did not return it. That's a breach of faith. Swearing falsely. In any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt, 
and will restore what he took by robbery or by what he got by oppression or by the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything which he has worn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it. That means 20%. And give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes its guilt. So that means anything that is an offense to your neighbor or anyone, you must restore it and add 20% more as an offering to the Lord. That means, make it very simple, you cannot simply pick the fruits overhanging your fence because that technically belongs to your neighbor. Yes? Now, I know it's very popular here in Florida. If it reaches your fence, then it's mine now. It's not true. Technically, it's your neighbor's. The Bible calls it robbery. It's a breach of faith. That means, also, you cannot hide from people you borrowed money from. Yes? Any borrowed money, (laughs) I heard the good yes there. Any borrowed money must be returned in full. Any property that was borrowed must be returned in good condition. Because if not, the Bible calls it a breach of faith. Now, what's the principle here? The principle is the Tenth Commandment. Listen to the Tenth Commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. It says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Now, I don't know why the house came first before the wife. It doesn't mean that the house is more important than the wife. All right? It doesn't mean like that. So, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, because in the olden times, servants are properties, or his ox, the ox is what you use for farming, or his donkey, his donkey is like the car, it's the, it's the thing that they use to, to travel, or anything that is your neighbor's. The whole idea behind this is that you cannot covet what is your neighbor's. Your neighbor's is his, it's his property. See, the Tenth Commandment is covered by the principle of sanctity, Anything that is owned by your neighbor is sacred. It's protected by God. Do I hear an amen to that? Now, there's a word before that. You shall not. And after that is covet. You know what that word means? Covet is an old English term. But the more shallow term for that is desire. You shall not desire what is not yours. Because they are not yours. There's another word for that that's used in the New Testament. You shall not lust after what is not yours. Desire, lust after what's not yours. You see, in the early pages of the Bible, that desire was used. Come on. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. You know this problem with the woman, the man, and the snake in the Garden of Eden? So the woman said, the woman saw that the fruit was good for food. A delight to the eyes and was to be desired to make one wise, she took it and she ate. That word there is the same word that was used in covet. You shall not covet, desire. It's the same word because it's not yours. The tree of of knowledge of good and evil was not theirs to eat in the first place. God forbade them to eat. And yet this woman saw that this fruit was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. So she took it and she ate. See, the problem is not the desire. 
for the shiny things around us. The problem is, let me take it back. The problem is not the shiny things around us because there are so many temptations around us. The problem is the desire after the things which are not yours. No wonder Jesus also used this word desire when he thought about adultery, Matthew chapter 5, 28. But I tell you, watch this again, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, the same word, covet, desire, lustfully, already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's the desire. It's not the looking, brothers and sisters. It's the desire after, to possess, to own, the desire. You see, this passage in Matthew echoes the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Or if she's single, your neighbor's daughter. It all starts from the heart. And don't think it's all about women. Because this word has a cousin. There's a cousin for this one. Desire, covet, lustful. It's greed in the New Testament. Greed. What exactly is greed? It is one of the most notorious reasons why we are having disparity of wealth today. There are people who simply want more and don't want you to have anything. There are people who are just simply greedy because they want to control you. That's why they want to have everything. And if we are not careful as Christians, this word greed can become a trap for us. You see, in, on July chapter 4, I'm supposed to say not chapter 4, but on July 4, 1776, the 13 states signed the Declaration of Independence. And you know this. This is very popular. The famous line says, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Not born, created equal, because this is theological. The founding fathers understood. This is not just some political thing. This is a theological statement, that all men are created equal. And they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Let me correct that. It's not happiness, it's not the right to happiness, but the pursuit of happiness. Let me be clear. What we have is the pursuit of happiness. Not happiness, not the right to happiness, but the pursuit of happiness. Because the founding fathers did not mean to say that we are entitled to happiness or that every American has a right to happiness. We have the right to pursue it. That's what we have. And on this premise of pursuit, a guy named James Adams in 1931 wrote a book entitled The Epic of America. This book is all about opportunities, possibilities, social mobility, fulfillment. It's all about the pursuit of happiness. But you know what's interesting? This book was written in 1931. In 1931, America was in Great Depression. America was 20% high, unemployed all over the country. And on top of it, there was a huge and long drought in the Midwest. And yet this guy was talking about American dream. Why? Because he was talking like the founding fathers, the possibilities and the pursuit of happiness. He was not talking about actual happiness. He was talking about the pursuit and the possibility of happiness. If you ask anyone today what American dream is all about, you will get one or two answers. It's all about big houses, luxury cars, and a big fat bank account. And some people would say, I've achieved it. I have everything of those. But the question is, are you happy? 
See, happiness and money are two different things. What is the American dream to you? People today pursue their dream because they think that today's American dream will give them the maximum amount of happiness. People think that if you have more money, more possession, you will be more happy. That is not true. That once you achieved, that once you have, you know, that phrase, go big or go home, that once you've reached a certain threshold of prosperity, you will find happiness. Beloved, this is a big lie. Money cannot buy you happiness. It can buy you comfort. It can buy you excitement. It can buy you some friends, but it cannot give you real happiness. Haven't we learned from the smartest and richest person ever lived? It's not Elon Musk. It's King Solomon. King Solomon had everything he ever wanted. He was the richest person in his time. At the height of his prosperity, he was so smart that he wrote some of the, couple of the books in the Bible. But then at the end of his, the day, he said everything is meaningless. Listen to his words, his very words. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 2. He said, God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. What a shame. And let strangers enjoy them instead. And he said, this is meaningless. So you may have all the money you have, all the possessions you have, all the treasures you have, and yet you don't enjoy it because God does not let you. That's a shame. See, money is one thing, happiness is another. Money can give you a sense of comfort, but not real happiness, not real significance, not real meaning, unless God allows you to experience them. I know a lot of rich people are not happy. That, that's why they want to have more money. But they don't realize that making more money, having more money, possessing more money will not really make them happy. What if I tell you that today's American dream is the enemy of the gospel? Listen up, Christians. The American dream today is the enemy of the gospel. Here's the premise. In the New Testament, Apostle Paul tells us that we as followers of Jesus Christ, like the Israelites, are called to be holy. We are called. We have a calling. He said in Ephesians 1.4, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So what's our calling? Our calling is the same with the Israelites, to be called holy, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Jesus calls, that, calls us the salt and light of the world. Do you believe that? With conviction. Yes. Amen. <laughs> I think sometimes, really, Pastor, am I light of the world? I'm not sure about it. I have so little influence. You are. Jesus said you are the light and salt of the earth. The church has this mandate that no other organization in the world has. We are called to be the trendsetters of ethics and morality, of truth and dignity. You see, we are the only group of people who have the mandate to explain the gospel through our way of life. And there's no other group of people who have this kind of mandate. Christians are the only one who has this mandate. Our calling is different from the world. Listen, regardless of which country you came from, your calling is not the American dream. I'm not saying for a second that you just stop pursuing excellence or not be good in school or not aim for big things. What I'm saying is in the context of our calling, 
we should avoid the temptation of getting sucked by desire, by lust, by greed, so that all we think about now is to make money, make more money, so that you can buy more stuff, travel to more places, experience new things at the expense of the gospel. It is the gospel that we, are, uh, we should prioritize. It is the gospel that is our calling. The gospel is the calling. The gospel is the reason why we are here. Think about this one. Maybe this is a cliche, but think about this one. If the goal of Jesus for dying on the cross was to bring you to heaven, then the moment you accept him by faith, believe in him as your Lord and Savior, then that means you're saved, you're done. Immediately, God should bring you to heaven. Question is, why are you still here? You'd probably say, Pastor, maybe God has a reason for me to be here. Maybe God has a mission for me. So what is your mission? What's your mission? Now, Jesus was very clear about his mission. There must be a reason why you're still here. All of us are called to live out the gospel. Our life should become a living testimony of the gospel. The reason why God wants us to stay here is not so that we can enjoy life more. That's secondary. The reason why and the primary reason why God allows you to stay here is because of the gospel. It is the gospel for the service of God. You see, we are the new community whose lives will be known by people around the world pursuing one thing, not the American dream, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was the last commission, Matthew 28, 18, 19, 20. What did Jesus say about the American dream? Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. It's too bad for you to have millions in the bank. That was a joke. He said, Where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, where their thieves do not break and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me repeat that last sentence. Your treasure is where your heart is. What, what do you do when you're in love? All you think of every day, every moment, of every second, is the guy you're in love with. You're so preoccupied with that person. Correct? Oh, yes. Thank you very much for that. Why? Because your heart is invested. It's a good thing that Freddie is still in love. Every day. Amen to that. <laughs> what do you do when you, first, you, you buy your first car? You pour in hours of research so that you can get the best bang for the buck. You get invested. Your heart is invested. What do you do when you travel for the first time? You do the same things. Find the, the best and cheapest flight. Find the best and cheapest hotel. Find the most interesting places. Your heart is invested. And you pour in hours and hours of research. Your heart is invested. See, if all year round, the biggest portion of your money, your time, your skill, your entertainment are centered and focused on the things of the world and not Jesus, I can tell you where your heart is. What preoccupies your heart? What is it in your heart that ticks you off, that inspires you every day? You see, if there's any pursuit worth taking, the real pursuit of happiness is not on the treasures of the world, but on the treasures in heaven. So the question, 
question is, what, what does it mean to store treasures in heaven? Now, interestingly, Jesus also talked about rewards. At the end of the Beatitude in chapter 5 of Matthew, he said this, Matthew 5, 12, he said, Rejoice and be glad. Well, let me give you the context. Matthew chapter 5 is about Beatitudes. Jesus would say, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the hungry for justice and righteousness. Blessed are you if you are persecuted. I mean, how can you be happy if you're persecuted? And Jesus said, rejoice and be glad. This is the last verse of the chapter 5. Even if you are poor in spirit, hungry for righteousness and justice, you are persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, rejoice and be glad. How can you do that? Because you see, he said, because great is your reward in heaven. Your reward is not here. It's in heaven. So do not expect reward now. Reward is in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, a lot of people in the Old Testament, the saints in the Old Testament, all the saints that were mentioned in Hebrews chapter 12, were all of those who did not receive their reward. I wonder how much your reward will be in heaven. Let me check, Pastor. I think I've done my checklist. Your reward should be in heaven. You see, after mentioning all the blessed be, blessed be, Jesus said, rejoice and be glad because there is a reward that's still yet to come. A reward. And I'm also looking forward to that kind of reward. See, again, Jesus makes his final approach to Jerusalem a week before he was crucified. He prophesied his death. And he told his disciples, in three days, uh, I will be arrested, I will be crucified, in three days, I will rise again. And Simon Peter did not believe. So he told Jesus, no, Jesus, that will never be. That will never happen to you. And Jesus rebuked him. And then he was so patient by correcting Peter. So he said, Matthew 16, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they had done. Beloved, our hearts must be focused on the real pursuit of happiness, not the treasures on earth, the treasures in heaven. That is the real reward. You know what's the good thing about the reward in heaven? It does not depreciate. It just accumulates. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I was thinking about this while I was preparing this sermon. You know, Jesus had all the healing powers, yes? He could have built a hospital and gathered all the sick people, especially, you know, the terminal ones, and healed them and could have made money out of it, but he did not. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, Jesus could have built a business empire. He could have, he could have produced bread and fish, bread and fish all over the world. He could have made millions. He did not. Jesus was very good at, you know, people call magic, some, some tricks. He could have turned water into wine. He could have been very good at that. He could have shown people how he walked on water. He could have shown people how to raise the dead and all those stuff and made millions out of it, but he did not. Why? Because it was not part of his calling. There was only one calling. His calling was the cross. He was focused on the cross question is, what's your calling? Do you know your calling? Are you pursuing your calling? 
Jesus enters Jericho. Crowd follows. They love Jesus Christ. But there was this one rich guy. He was a little bit short, maybe four feet and five inches. Shorter than me. He wanted to see Jesus. And so what he did, he climbed a tree because he cannot see, you know, the crowds are in there. So he climbed a tree. And it was like looking at Jesus coming. And then when Jesus came to stop at where the tree was, he said, Luke chapter 19, verse 5, he said, When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. I mean, they never met before this one. But Jesus knew the, the name of this person. Now, the question is, why, why did Jesus do this? Why choose this person? Now, when I was reading this, I was amazed at the audacity of Jesus Christ to invite himself. I wish I could do the same thing. Boyet, can you invite me for dinner tonight? I mean, Jesus did. Zacchaeus, come down. I will come to your house today. I mean, he had this audacity. But the question is, what is this? Why this guy? Of all people in Jericho, why this guy? The Bible gave us a hint. Why? Because he's a chief tax collector and he's very rich. Now, do you have a problem with that? Do you think Jesus is like picky? He wants to go where, you know, there's more food because this guy is rich. Well, that's not the, the reason why. Now, this guy is rich. The question is, why was he rich? He's not just a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector. And you know, if he's a government, if he's a government employee, if he's on the payroll, he cannot be rich unless he's doing a side hustle. So this guy is doing hocus pocus on, you know, his, his job, his money. I would say that this guy was living the American dream, so to speak. But right after Jesus called to him, Zacchaeus, come down, I'm going to go to your house, the people had a different reaction. Listen to the people. Luke 19.7. All the people saw this and began to mutter. Mutter is also grumble. That reminds me of the Old Testament Israelites when they always complain about God, grumble, mutter. And they said, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. So the problem with Zacchaeus is not that he's rich. The problem is that he is a sinner. Ah, sinner. What does it mean? Why would this guy be a sinner? How could they know that he's a sinner? Now, he's a tax chief collector. Corruption is a very small part of the problem. That's not the main problem. The real issue of tax collectors is that they collect money for Rome. Rome, during the time, was the oppressors of the Israelites. And so, if you are a tax collector, you're collecting money for Rome, you are oppressing the Israelites. And therefore, this guy was, was an outcast. He was looked at as a scum of the earth. He was, he was not allowed to enter the temple. And yet, ironically, Jesus wanted to go to his house. And here's this guy. He realized that grace was in front of him. He realized his mistakes. He realized his sins. So this is what he said to Jesus Christ. Luke 19, verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I will give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. What does it remind you of? The guilt offering, Leviticus chapter 6. If you have defrauded your neighbor, you have to return it in full plus 20%. 
This guy is not just offering 20%. This guy is offering half of his fortunes and 400 times. I mean, is this really repentant or not? I think he's serious about this one. See, this guy who was living the American dream realized that his pursuit of more money, more security, more significance is really the pursuit of happiness. And he realized that real happiness is not about, it's not about making more money, more success, more stability. Real happiness is to be right with God. That brings real happiness. And if there's anything that will make him happy or blessed, is to be right with God. Do you realize that the word blessed in Matthew can also be translated in other Bible? Happy. Happy are those. Because you are right with God. You see, Jesus, Jesus said it's not the mighty who will inherit the earth. It's the weak. Jesus did not say those in power will be filled, but those who are wanting. Jesus did not say it's not the selfish who will be shown mercy. It is the pure in heart who will see God. It is those who have realized that they have, and have repented of their sins and turned to God. That is the pure in heart. Those people will be the one to see God. Ever wonder what that means? Those who are pure in heart will see God. I mean, when do you see God? In the afterlife, correct? And who's going to see God in the afterlife? Those who are pure in heart. And how do you have pure in heart? If you repented of your sins. If you gave your life to Jesus Christ. And Zacchaeus just did exactly that. You see, God's arm isn't too short to reach out to anyone who is willing to repent and admit he's guilty. A lot of people today, they just say, Oh, I know God loves me. Oh, I know God is forgiving. But does not want to repent. Because repentance means turning away from what you're doing that is wrong. Some people just can't simply give up what they're doing that is wrong. They want to continue it because it makes them happy, excited, at the expense of being right with God, which gives them more happiness. Here's one more question. What if the harm was not just done to the neighbor but directed to God? What if that harm is directed to God? So in the Old Testament, if you do something against your neighbor, you will pay a ram plus 20%. Will that also work here when you directed your harm to God? Let me read to you Leviticus 5, 14. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish, out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for a guilt offering. So if you happen to sin against God by breaching your faith, by doing something with the holy things of the Lord, you've got to give him a ram. He shall also make some restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy things, and he shall add the fifth to it and give it to the priest. The priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. So not only a ram, but also a fifth, 20% of whatever you took from the Lord. So the question is, what are the holy things of the Lord? What are the holy things of the Lord? What is this talking about? The holy things of the Lord is anything that's inside the temple. That is the holy things of the Lord. Any articles in the holy 
temple is the holy things of the Lord. Anything that you put inside is the holy thing of the Lord. See, the Ten Commandments say, one of those says, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. You shall not use the name of the Lord in vain. Why? Because God is holy. And if you use the name of the Lord in vain, you are breaking that breach of faith. So that means anyone who swears on the name of God and does not fulfill them, that person is in breach of faith. He has committed a sin against the Lord. Did you know that Jesus actually confronted the Pharisees regarding swearing on God's name? Now, I hear many people swear on God's name as if it's nothing, as if it's just a joke. They're not taking it seriously. See, apparently, the Pharisees in the Bible, the religious people, were smart people. And many people are getting away with swearing on the name of God because these Pharisees, the religious people, are saying, it's okay, God will not punish you. If you swear on God's name, that's wrong. But if you swear on the holy things of the Lord inside the temple, it's okay. You may not swear on God's name, but you can swear on the altar. Or you can not swear on God's name, but you can swear on the gold of the altar. It's okay. It's lesser. It's not as holy as God. But you see, Jesus rebuked them. Matthew 23, verse 19, it says, He said to the Pharisees, You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. Anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells on it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Anything that is holy is holy regardless because God is holy. And if you swear on anything that is holy, then you have to fulfill it or else you will do a breach of faith. See, Leviticus was very clear about the holy, thing, holy things of God. If you made a vow to God, and you, of course, you're the only one who knows about this one, and you uttered these words, whatever those words, you made it a vow, God takes it very seriously. He takes it very seriously. He listens to you. You see, say, for example, out of generosity, you promise God, that if he gives you a job, you will give him, say, 10% of your earnings. And you forgot. That is a breach of faith. You must restore it. You, make, you must make restitution. Or else, you're breaking the breach of faith. Why do you have to give it to the Lord? Why do you have to be true to your promise? Because whatever you promise is already holy. It was dedicated to the Lord. That means it's no longer yours to spend. It belongs to God. And you know what the Bible calls it? Robbery. That is what Malachi keeps on saying. If you withhold your tithe, you are robbing God because it belongs to Him. Technically, you've made a vow. It's God's. It's not yours. question is, how many times have we made promises to God? Lord, please, Help me of my sickness. Heal me, and I will serve you all the days of my life. And then you're healed. What happened next? Or you say, God, let me pass this exam. Let me pass this interview or this business project. I will do anything you want me to do. I will be active in the church. I will go to church every Sunday. I will be, I'll volunteer to anything that you want me to do. 
And then you pass the exam. You pass the interview. What happens next? Or maybe you'd say, Lord, if you will just allow me to win this girl, I like her so much. Or maybe if you could just give me a partner in life, Lord, I will do anything that you want me to do. I promise. And then it's given to you. What happens next? Is it contrary to us? God is the same God. He doesn't change. He doesn't lie. He doesn't back out. Because God is faithful. The Bible said even when we are not faithful, God is. He's the same God, the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the same God who heals, same God who rescues, the same God who answers prayers. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Declare it in your heart. Confess it with your mouth. He's the same God. If you made a vow, brothers and sisters, fulfill it. God looks in your heart. God is always forgiving. He looks upon our hearts. There's always a check and chance for God. I heard the pastor once say, God is a God of many chances. And I believe that. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for the goodness, for the love, for the forgiveness that you shower upon us. Thank you for always reminding us, though we are not worthy, but you have given yourself freely to us. And yet, while we were yet sinners, the Bible said Christ already died for us. There was no condition of your death. But there's always a condition for repentance. Father, I pray that you will help us recall those promises, those vows that we made. Allow us to make restitution and fulfill them. Because we know that we can always come to you. Because we know that your grace is overflowing. That it's unlimited. That your love is always with us. Bless our hearts. In Jesus' name.